0: Well, hello, everybody. So we're going to keep going through the book of Acts. Actually, our our final chapter is next week. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read all of Acts 27, which if you've never read it, it's the story of Paul's shipwreck. And so we'll turn to it here. Move. So, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, remember Paul went to Jerusalem, and as was prophesied, um, the Jews had a riot. They accused him of false teaching, they accused him of all kinds of things. They wanted to string him up and kill him. The Romans intervened and arrested him, and they were ready to basically torture him to, get to find out the real reason why everybody was mad at him. And Paul says, I'm going to, I want to appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, that means they transport him to Rome so he can stand before Caesar. And that's now the journey that we're in. And verse 1, it says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion. Centurion is just you know, a Roman military official of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Andromidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. Asia is actually Turkey when it refers to Asia. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Because remember, Paul's a prisoner being transported as a prisoner. And putting out to sea from, the, from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, you're just going to have to go on a two- cruise ship to Italy and Greece so that you know where all these places are. That's what you're going to have to do. And Turkey. We came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us aboard. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off uh, Sinaitis. And as the wind would not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. You might say, that's a lot of detail. You need to notice the we is everywhere in this passage. This isn't where Luke is getting the report from eyewitnesses. Luke is the eyewitness. And so whenever you have these we sections, all of a sudden the detail goes through the roof. Um, And since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, which is the Day of Atonement, Jewish feast, was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the saturion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, Paul knew what he was talking about. He, When he wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians, which was four years before this point, he said, I'd already been in three shipwrecks. So he's like, he, like, he knows shipwrecks. But this, in, and verse 12, and because the harbor was, not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the northeaster, this is a known winter storm that would come on the Mediterranean. Struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. They lost control of the ship. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. When you're taking on water, you want the boat to rise, get higher up in the water. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, how do you navigate in the ancient world? What do you use? The sun and the stars. And no small tempest lay on us. All hopes of our being saved was at last abandoned. They panicked. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So the angel said, nothing's going to happen to you and nothing's going to happen to everyone with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But then Paul says, but we must run aground on some island. He's prophesying. We're going to have to have a shipwreck on an island. Running aground is not good for a ship. When the 14th night had come, how many weeks is that? That's two weeks of this. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again. You know, they'd use the rope and the weights to find out the depth. And found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, it's getting shallower, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors from the boat, so they were pretending to lay down anchors And that's what everyone thought they were doing. What were they laying down? The escape ship. The the life raft. The the lifeboat. And it lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, the lifeboat, and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day, and you have continued in suspense. That's a lot of anxiety. And without food, having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, all, we were in all 276 persons on the ship. That's a pretty accurate detail, right? And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This was a grain ship that, was so, that transported grain. So after they ate, they had to lighten the ship, get it higher in the water, so they tossed the rest of the wheat out. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a, d- a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. So they're getting rid of all of the weight, including the anchors, get that thing as light as possible, and let the wind just drive them into the island." But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. This ship is breaking apart. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. If a Roman soldier let one of his prisoners escape, guess what happened to that Roman soldier? He was killed. So the Roman soldiers would rather kill the prisoners than let them escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought, safety, were brought safely to land, and after we were brought safely through, then we learned that the island was called Malta. So that's, the, that's this entire chapter with this very detailed journey through the sea. And what I want you to notice is at the end, it says, So it was that all were brought safely, dia sodzo. Dia is a preposition meaning through, and sodzo to save, rescue, or deliver. They were saved, brought safely to land or through to the land. After we were brought safely through, there's the word again, sodzo we then learn that the island was called Malta. So what's going on here? Paul was in Jerusalem. I mentioned that. He was accused by the Jews of speaking against the law and speaking against the temple, and, there's, and they wanted him to die. And they seized him, and they were about to kill him, and the Romans see this and intervene, and the Romans arrest him and put him in chains. And so... Now he's being tried by the Romans. And what does Paul do? He appeals his case after he lets them know he's a Roman citizen to Caesar himself. So now they got to take him from Jerusalem to Rome where Caesar is. Because for Paul, it wasn't just appealing his case so that he would be announced innocent. It was the, the, the actual arrest the persecution was putting paul in places where he could be a witness to the highest people in the levels of government but then we read in acts 25:11 to 12 paul says if i them am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which i deserve to die i do not seek to escape death but if there's anything to their charges against me no one can give them Give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, who was a Roman leader, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So, with that decision, they're transporting Paul, but they got to go across the Mediterranean Sea to get there. And here's the journey. So, they start here in Caesarea, here in Jerusalem and you can follow the journey this is literally the different locations that the ship went now i want you to notice something once you get to a minute you see malta that's a tiny tiny little island in the middle right and this is key the odds remember they've lost control of the ship for 2 weeks they are in the and we'll look at this in a moment just think about the odds of hitting Malta, and from there then they ended up going to Rome. The sea journey was really dangerous, really perilous, and so what's the theme of the chapter? What's the backdrop? It is God's protection, God's deliverance, God's salvation for Paul and this whole group that's with Paul. How do we know that? This word, sozo, this verb in Greek, it means to save, to rescue, to deliver, or to bring through safely. When all the verses about salvation from sin, eternal life, this verb sozo is used, but it's also used literally from salvation, not from sin, but just from danger, just from life threatening situations. The word sozo is used exactly seven times in chapter 27. The whole account actually goes through the middle of chapter chapter 28. It's used seven times, and it's the theme. It's the purpose of of why Luke is telling you all this detail. The first instance of sozo in Acts 27.20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, And no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And now, then the word is used seven or six more times. Why is this understanding so important? God does not just save us from sin, God saves us from insecurity and anxiety. He doesn't just forgive us for what we've done wrong, which he does, but he brings us safely through all types of difficult circumstances in life that are outside of our control. So what do we learn in Acts 27 about being saved by God? What does this teach us about being safe in God? Let's look at it a little bit more, verse 9 through 11. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So what is the fast? The fast was a way of referring to the Day of Atonement. This event happens in 59 A.D. And the Day of Atonement, we know the day it landed, October 5th. So that fast had just, was, had just passed. And there was an ancient Roman author named Vegatius... That wrote a, a whole series of books about the Roman military, ancient writings. Uh, and he wrote that sailing on the Mediterranean was safe until September 14, that it was uncertain until November 11th, and that the Mediterranean was closed for sailing from November 11th to March 5th. And he says, why? When the winter storms come, you've got fog, you have overcast skies, navigation becomes impossible. And the sea becomes extremely unsafe. So October 5th had already passed. In the Jewish Talmud, which is all that Jewish religious commentary and writing, and one of the books, Genesis Rabbah, It literally says that sea journeys were unsafe after the Feast of Tabernacles, after the Feast of Booze. And the Talmud says, don't travel on the sea after that feast. Well, when is that? That's five days after the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was October 5th, and it already passed for Paul and his team. Well, and the fellow prisoners. So what does Paul do? He advised them. The Greek verb is he strongly urged them not to sail. Why? Winter was coming. Daylight is shorter. Nights are longer. The cloud cover is there. There's poor visibility. There's raging winds that you'd have no control over. And then you got the rain and and even snow at times. And Paul, you have to understand, in this passage... Paul is not prophesying. Paul is advising. He's not speaking prophetically. He's speaking wisely. Why? He's not speaking from divine revelation. He just is speaking from his own experience. And I mentioned this earlier. He's already been shipwrecked three times before this account. Paul said in 2 Corinthians... 11:25:26 which was written before this account. 3 times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Paul knew what he was talking about. But the centurion didn't heed Paul's advice, even though he should have. The centurion talks to the captain and the ship owner. They just want to get their business and make their money. Deliver their grain. They're like, no, let's keep going. And why am I mentioning this? When You guys, when we have difficult situations, when we have crises, We need to make decisions based off of what? And. Both. Not just one. What is wisdom? It's insight you gain because you have a lot of experience in life. Right? That's why old people have wisdom. Young people have no idea what they're doing. Because... It's, it's experience. It's, it's, um, it's just watching the way things work. Revelation is insight that's supernatural. It's not from your experience. It's from the Spirit. But both are critically important. Both are important. The Bible, when you read the Bible... It doesn't just have prophecies from all a bunch of prophets that heard God's voice. It also has, everybody say Proverbs, from wise men. When the Bible uses this phrase wise men, what is it talking about? The men and women that have observed the way life works, the way situations work, that have experienced, and they've learned from it. They've learned from it. That's why you want. Yes, you want to hear God's voice. You want to have revelation, but you also want wisdom. It's kind of like this. You want revelation and to see God heal people and do miracles, right? But you also want wisdom. If how should I exercise? What healthy food should I eat? How should I sleep decisions that make your body healthier? Right? It's not physic- it's not miraculous healing or a wellness program. It's what? It's what? It's both. It's the same with relationships. It's not just praying for people which you want to do. Right? It's not just asking God to intervene. It's also the wisdom of life. How do you get angry and not sin? Right? How do you relate to people uh, and be authentic and honest? You know what I'm saying? This is really important, especially in the charismatic church. There's such an absolute emphasis on revelation that. Sometimes there's a complete lack of wisdom, right? And we want both. We want both. So what Paul does is he gives wise advice in 27.10, but later on, the Lord adds prophetic insight in 27.24. Both of them are going on, right? So we need to be walking in what? What? Wisdom and what? Revelation. We want to do both. So what happens? Verse 14, But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cowda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the the Sertis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." When it says to tempestuous wind, in Greek, tempestuous is typhonikos. It's the origin of the word typhoon, which in the Pacific they have typhoons. In the Atlantic, they have hurricanes. Same thing. So, what? This was a hurricane. This was a real hurricane that hit. And what did it do to them? Well, number one, they were no longer in control of their ship. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. That's scary. And the wind drove their ship southward. They, there was this island with its protection and it drove them right away from it. What else happened? They continued to take on water, so they jettisoned cargo in order to make the boat lighter and sit higher in the water. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. What else happened? They lost their sense of direction. They lost their ability to navigate. Since with the dark clouds, the sun and stars could no longer be seen for days and days. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now here's my point. Do you understand God is leading Paul? Do you understand, Paul, this was all been prophesied beforehand. Paul had already said, I'm in the will of God. Paul said, this is exactly where God wants me and God allows Paul and those with him to enter I'm telling you this seemingly hopeless situation right Do you guys ever read Luke 8 the disciples are in a boat on the sea of Galilee and this massive storm hits they're afraid that they're going to drown they're terrified so Jesus shows up, and what does Jesus do? He commands the storm to stop. And what does, happens to the storm? Instantly stops. And the disciples are saved, right? Now Paul and his companions are facing, facing a life-threatening storm on the Mediterranean. And e- even when an angel shows up, God does not command the storm to stop. He doesn't still it. Right? He doesn't even save their boat. In the end, they are saved as they're swimming through the surf or holding onto pylons or wood from a, a shipwreck. But He still saves them. And I'm telling you, Sometimes you cannot take a situation and say, God did this, so God always does this. You can't do that. Israel, if you read the book of Isaiah and in Kings, Israel is the Assyrian Empire, conquers the Middle East, and the Assyrian Empire surrounds Jerusalem. And they're ready to destroy Israel and enslave them. And Jerusalem cries out, Lord, your temple, your people. King Hezekiah says, Lord, we're crying out, rescue us. God sends an angel. Angel kills 180 plus thousand Assyrian soldiers, and they're delivered. They're like, wow, look what God did. Decades later, a long time later, the Babylonians now... Big empire, they're conquering the Middle East, they surround Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, just submit to the Babylonians, because they're going to come in and they're going to destroy everything. So, don't resist, just submit. And what did they say? We're not going to submit. We already know what God does when we get sieged. Right? Right? God won't let his temple be destroyed. God won't let his capital city be destroyed. God won't let his people of Judah be enslaved because the Assyrians tried it. Look what God did. And Jeremiah said, it's different this time. And they, they would not listen to Jeremiah because in their mind they said, we know the way God worked in the past. Does that make sense? And they were wrong. Now, Following God might mean you end up in a deadly, lethal storm. But that does not mean that you are not safe. And this is the point. You've got to grasp this. The safest place in the world is to be in the center of His will. Where is the safest place? To be in this. And for Paul, the center of God's will was on a storm and a hurricane on the way to Rome. And that's literally what God sends an angel to tell Paul. So let's look at that. Acts 27 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You must, in Greek that, that word must, day, means it's going to happen And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must, there's must again, run aground on some island. The ship must break apart because that's part of God's plan. There was... There was a lot of food on board, so why weren't the men eating? They didn't have an appetite. Why didn't they have an appetite? It could be physically, this boat, is this, this thing is being tossed so violently in the water, or it's just major seasickness. They're just not able to eat. Or it could also just be, there, there was so much anxiety and so much fear that the, that the, the thought of eating was just gone. That's a lot of anxiety. That's a lot of panic, right? Later on, a few verses later, we read, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you continued in suspense and without food and have taken nothing. That word in suspense, it implies this fearful expectation of what's about to happen. Has anybody ever lived in that place? And in the midst of that, God sends an angel to Paul, and what's the first thing the angel says? Everybody say it out loud, four words. Do not be afraid. afraid. It is not enough that we are forgiven of our sin. As Christians, we don't want to just live forgiven of our sin, although that's wonderful. We want to live free of anxiety and insecurity. Everybody say, do not be afraid. So how do you not fear? Usually when God gives a command, then you learn how to do the command. And Paul tells us in the next verse, take heart, men, for I have what? Three words, say it loud. That it will be exactly as I have been told. Do you know what the root at the root of all fear and all anxiety is a lack of trust in God. It's that simple. At the root, right? When you, you, you're afraid and anxious because things are outside of your control, deep inside, where's, what's the root of that? Is for some reason you're not believing that he has you in his hand, that he's in control. You believe something else is in control of your life. You, the situation, the other person. Who do we believe is controlling our lives? Are the circumstances controlling your life? Are you controlling it? Or is it God? If God really is in control, what's your part? You trust Him. You trust Him. Now, you might say, but Paul gave them advice at the beginning. Paul said, don't do it. There's going to be a lot of destruction of property and life at the beginning where Paul said, don't do it. Don't go. And, and, and if you look at that, you might say, well, their problems are because of their own making, right? Their situation was a result of their own bad decisions. Now, have any, are any of you like me, where sometimes, you know, maybe I made a bad financial decision, all of a sudden my wife and I are in debt, and things are really shaky? And I almost feel like I can't cry out to God for help. I got myself in the mess. I got to get myself out of the mess. Right? And Brooke would get mad at me when I would get in that attitude. She'd say, "Only God only rescues you if someone else causes it, not if you cause it. Even though they completely blew off Paul's advice, God still said That he would not just save Paul, but everyone with Paul. Do you understand what I'm saying? Even with their bad decision, God said, I'm still going to rescue them. And behold, God has granted, here's what the angel said to Paul. God has granted you all those who sail with you. Some people don't expect God to rescue them because they say, well, that's my own mistake. That's my own bad decision. Well, even that you've got to give it to God and cry out for rescue. Why? Everybody say gracious and merciful. Who's the most gracious person you've ever met? God. Who's the most merciful person you've ever met? Even when you're the cause of your own problem, you can cry out to him for rescue. Why? It's because of this word granted. This word granted is a key word in the whole chapter. Remember what he said? The angel, and behold, God has what? Granted you all those who sail with you. That word granted is karizomai. What does carizomai mean? It doesn't just mean give. It's a very specific verb. It means to show favor. It means to give graciously. It means to give freely. Often when it's translated, it is give freely. It is an unearned gift. It's, It's a present that someone gives you because they're nice, not because you earn it. It, it often, the word is used for forgive. What does forgive mean? You've done something bad towards me. You deserve punishment, but I am choosing not to hold it against you. Often, charizomai is, is translated forgive or pardon. The same verb that is granted in Acts 27, 24 is in Romans 8, 32, the same verb. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And Paul already said the us, we're a bunch of sinners who've just rebelled, who've been mean, who don't deserve anything but death. That's the us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That word graciously give is the verb And you understand Paul's logic? If his own son, if if the son of God is going to become a man, God become a man, die the punishment you deserve as a substitute in your place. If he's going to give himself for you, then why would he withhold anything else he wants to give you? Right? When we take communion later, I want this verse to sink in. You gave me Jesus. You died on the cross on my behalf. You paid the ultimate price. And I think that you're going to be stingy with me in other areas of my life? Okay. Why is Paul safe in God? Why are those that have called Paul, why are those with Paul also safe in God? God had a calling and destiny on Paul's life. It's funny. We know how well-designed our bodies are. Your eyeball has one million different parts interconnected that work together. That's a lot of design and a lot of purpose. uh, Just the eyeball. Look at your spinal cord. Look at your skin. Look at your skeleton and the architecture of your skeleton. It's all designed. There's purpose to all of it. You can see. You can hear. You can speak. You can touch. You can feel. You can run. You can climb trees. It's all designed with purpose. If you're just something like your body is designed with purpose, then is there not major purpose designed in your life? And Paul had that. He had a destiny. And God said, I am going to protect you until you fulfill your destiny. Right? I am going to protect you until you fulfill your destiny. God promised Paul something. And he's kept him safe until he fulfilled that promise. You might say, well, a shipwreck's not safe. He made it through the shipwreck. That was the fourth one. Do you think he's not safe in God? God said, Paul, you have to witness about me to Caesar in Rome. Paul says, there's no way I'm not making it to Rome. What is your destiny. So I, I, I almost feel like some of us and because I've been there. It's like we're asleep. When you're asleep, you're doing things in what? Dreams. That's not reality. We, it's almost like we have to wake up and you got to sit. Now oh, wait a minute. I wake up. I go to work. I go to church. You know what I mean? I'm trying to raise my kids. I'm trying to, um, I have my hobby. And that's all of those things are parts of your life. But you have a calling and a purpose. Why are you not dead yet? Why are you safe in God? What is he protecting you for? I mean, in Acts 27, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Acts 23, 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. Oops. What am I, what, what am I trying to say here? What is the safest place for you? The safest place for you is to be in the center of God's will for your life. For God's will for Paul was to go to Rome. How was he getting to Rome? In a ship, in a hurricane. That was the safest place for Paul to be. Right? Paul prophesied, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And we must run aground on some island. Two weeks later, this prophecy comes to pass. The ship strikes a reef. They run aground on the island of Malta. The ship breaks apart. 276 passengers are saved. But you have to understand. And then they were not only saved from the shipwreck, but then the Romans have to do their duty, and God saves them from that, from being killed. And how does the story finish? And so it was that the tall, that all, not tall, were brought safely to land, and we were brought safely through, And we then learned that the island was called Malta. Everybody say brought safely through. Landing on the tiny island of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean while it drifted sea in a typhoon for over two weeks is beyond incredible. It is like finding a needle in a haystack. Do you understand that? There are so many things you say, Mike, that, that could derail you and destroy you. For some people, it's family relationships. For some people, it's their finances. For some people, it is even more, even real danger. If you are a Christian in China, it's literally jail. If you are a Christian, In Iran, it's literally death. Do you understand what I'm saying? But you're safe. You, I pray often, Lord, take me where I'm at and put me exactly where you want me to be. Lord, keep me in the center of your will. I pray that often. That's where you want to be. And, and we need to not, the world is overwhelmed with anxiety, insecurity, depression. I mean, I don't even know how many people, and I am not saying medication is wrong. I'm on day cool right now. <laughs> I'm not saying medication is wrong. I'm saying, though, what's happening in the population when the number of people being medicated for anxiety is what it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've got to be different. I I mean, for me, I remember it was in the summer of 2018. I was backpacking with my older two. We were at a a rocky ledge at about 11,500 feet. There was snow, glaciers, and water all around us. And we were in a tent at night. We had just climbed a 13,000-plus peak the day, that day. And that night, I woke up at 3 a.m., thought I, be- I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought um, in every way, shape, or form I was having symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke or whatever. I had my satellite phone in front of me, and I was ready to hit the SOS button and get the helicopter to come get me. I didn't do it. I just kept waiting and waiting, and uh, I was more afraid of calling the helicopter than I was of what I thought I was experiencing. Finally, the sun came up. I didn't tell my kids what happened with me. Um, We packed up, and we hiked out seven or eight miles back to our car. And then that fall, this fear of death just started growing. I, for some reason, it felt like I was hearing stories of people having heart attacks and young people having strokes. And I felt like it's like a grenade any moment, some, the pin can be pulled and you blow up. Then in November, the Lord speaks to me and, and said, I want you and your family to go to Kansas City and go to the International House of Prayers conference, New Year's Eve conference called One Thing. I didn't want to go, um, I just didn't feel like going to a conference, I didn't feel like going to all the sessions. I felt like God said, go. And so I didn't want to spend the money, but I spent the money. And my brother lived out there. The last night of the conference, we had a real great talk. We talked for a couple of hours. And uh, I actually told him about my fear of my heart. And I had gone to the doctor, and they said, your blood pressure is too high. Uh, it's in the red zone. Your, um, your bad cholesterol and plaque is too high. It's in the red zone. And I have family history in that. And so I told my brother, he told me I'm never going to see a doctor. I just eat, enjoy life, and I die when I die. I said, you have kids, that's not a good approach. In February, he died. And the autopsy said that he died of a heart attack and that his, his um, veins were 90% occluded. That's that plaque, 90%. You have to understand since the summer I'm having anxiety about dying of a heart attack and then my brother 2 years older than me literally dies in in February of of 2019 literally dies of the very thing that was my greatest fear I remember one week and we had at that point then we just started I remember going Um, We left the Anaheim Vineyard. We were churchless for a while. We ended up going to Angie and Travis's church in Corona with the full understanding that we're going to, with them, we're going to go to their church and they're going to send us out to plant a church. And we had known them forever. And so it's a long story, but the moment we honestly, we stepped foot into the Inland Vineyard I'm telling you, spiritual warfare. So there's this demonic element where Satan is now uh, constantly ramping up accusation, anxiety, and fear in my life. So it's 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 both my own mental issue and it's spiritual warfare. I remember this one week, and after one of the first services we had, it was in March of 2019, Saturday. Brooke and, and the kids and I think Becca, I don't remember who, is driving on the five freeway to go, was it Legoland? And, and on the five freeway, the traffic comes to a grinding halt. When Brooke hits the brakes, the brakes are broken. So she is she literally, not, it's not that they're working, not at, they are not working at all. And we had just gotten it back from the shop because we had all the maintenance done on it. And she goes into the shoulder and and, and is literally ready for the mirrors to hit, the car to crash, and a massive wreck. And somehow, she ends up in the shoulder slowing down and doesn't hit anything. By the way, when we took the car in, the brake line had snapped in half the line that holds the brakes had snapped in half. That was on a Saturday. Um, just a weird side note, we t- one of our friends from Tibet said that there was a dedication of a new Tibetan Buddhist monastery in San Diego that day. It was just interesting how when she crosses into San Diego County, that happens. But I don't know. Sunday, we go to church at Andy and Travis's church, and Travis is teaching through Acts, goes to Acts 13, and gives a whole message about how their church is called to be a church-planning church. Who's the group that's about to be sent? Brooke and I. Right? But I knew that there was spiritual warfare because of that. Monday, I go to work, and all of a sudden, I thought I was feeling chest pains, I thought I was f- having sweats, I was feeling dizzy, and I thought, oh my God, I really am having a heart attack this time. I drive to my doctor, they don't want to see me, they say, go to emergency room, I said, I'm already in your parking lot. They bring me in, they give me an EKG, they give me everything, they said, you know, your blood pressure is bad, but we, we don't see a heart attack, you need to go see a cardiologist So then I drive back to work that day, but I have this overwhelming, impending sense that I'm gonna die any moment. And I can't shake it. Tuesday morning, I'm driving to work, and again, I at this point, it's not even a fear of a heart attack, it's a fear of dying. And I'm crying in the car. God, I don't want to die. I, I can't, it's not rational. I can't explain that to you. And I even said to God, I said, your word says we have the mind of Christ. And your mind has no anxiety and fear. So why doesn't that verse apply to me? I I said to God, I show up at work. At noon, I get a call from our credit card company. They said, you've been, there's been fraud on your account And they actually sent me to a special security person because it wasn't just that somebody used our card. It's that they answered all the security questions. They knew my mother's maiden name. They knew my social security. They knew my address. All the security questions. It was, yeah, that's what I'm realizing. And they said, this is full identity theft. Already there were huge charges at overstock.com, There were charges at um, Amazon, lots of other places. And they said, this is more than just credit card fraud. Somebody has all, and they're using your identity. That felt very violating to me. Tuesday night, I'm driving to L.A. to teach at Harvest Bible University. The topic was Paul, Prayer, and Spiritual Warfare. And as I am teaching, I, th- I, I, I start having anxiety, panic attack, and I think I'm having a heart attack. But I've got 40 students in front of me, and I'm afraid to say anything to them. It was the most bizarre situation. Thursday morning, I called Jamie Gillentine, and we met every Thursday morning for prayer and. And Well, I didn't call him. I met with him at his office at the Anaheim Vineyard, and I told him what had been happening. He knew a little bit about my anxiety. I had not shared any of this with my kids. I was keeping this, you know, Brooke knew about it. I was intentionally making this something my kids didn't know about. I didn't want them to be scared for their own dad who thinks he's going to die any moment. And Jamie puts me in a chair in his office, and he marches around me praying. He's literally marching around me praying. He grabs his Bible. He's reading Psalm 91 over me. And all of a sudden, he reads the last verse. With long life, he will satisfy me. And I got overwhelmed because I was was so afraid of dying prematurely. And all of a sudden, that verse hit me. With long life, he will satisfy me. And then I told Jamie, I said, you got to keep praying that verse over me. I'm crying. He's praying. And Lord, we just, and he just kept repeating the verse over me. I needed to get out of this dark mindset into trusting God. I no longer believed God was in control of my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I didn't. I, it was finally, it was on, on Friday, and I brought this with me. I told Kayla, I don't remember why, but I, I told her everything that happened with me in the past week. Um, oh, yeah, because she had something that happened. I said, well, I, we had the car, ID theft. I went to the doctor. And I told her all this, and she goes, wow, Dad. She said, two weeks ago. This was two weeks before we talked. She said, I had a dream that I, I haven't told anybody. I said, well, what was the dream? And she ended up texting it to me. And here's what she texted. In the dream, we were out in front of our house. The houses across the street from us were missing, and we could see the valley in front of us. There was a thunderstorm happening but it was bright above us, but it wasn't, and it wasn't raining. The thunder didn't sound natural. I could see this darkness out in the near distance. It was like a tornado of darkness coming down on our house. We didn't notice it before, and we were a bit freaked out. We ran back into the house, and with the door open, watched it move towards us. We started singing a worship song and, it, and then she quotes the line they were singing. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. And she said, then the dream ended. You have to understand, when she had this dream, she had no idea the overwhelming fear and anxiety I was living in. And when I saw that, My daughter has a dream, in the dream is a worship song, and the last line of the worship song before she wakes up is, Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. I wasn't perfect after that, but a radical shift happened. And I started trusting God, trusting God while I'm driving to work, trusting God And then I remember that next summer, I scheduled a bunch of peaks to climb in the Sierras. And I mean, I had nights in the tents where my body literally shook from panic attacks. But I decided, for me, trusting God was when I don't feel He is near, I'm still going to make steps that He is with me. Does that make sense? When I felt anxiety... That's when I had to trust him, even though I didn't feel it. And how did I do that? By doing the very things I was afraid of. By doing the very things I was afraid of. And I am 100% convinced God is going to, I am not going to die until I'm done. And you too, follow Jesus. If he says go to Rome and go to Caesar, then get on the boat, right? So we're going to take communion just a moment, but even as I was sharing, what well, was God highlighting something to you guys? Was, was something jumping out to you? We looked at this whole chapter. Was anything jumping out at you guys? Anything? Or what is God maybe speaking to you right now? Just a, a couple sentences, not a, your whole testimony. Anything?